The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. Uh, we're also joined by uh, another one of our partners in crime. If you've been a regular reader of the Weekly of late, you, you'll recognize uh, Brian Joseph's byline. He's been doing a lot of great work for us, and especially this month. This is uh, Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and uh, in light of that, Brian has been doing a great series of stories uh, on the issue of human trafficking, and specifically sex trafficking, which is an area... Um, he knows a lot about, and I'm going to explain that because that, that sounds kind of weird now coming out of my mouth, but uh, he knows about it because Brian has been um, working on this issue as a reporter for quite a long time, and I'm and I'm thrilled actually to have him joining us today on the podcast. Uh, how's it going there, Brian? Glad to be here. Excited to be talking with you guys. Yeah, well, you know, this is, this is an issue I know, like as I said, you know uh, more than most people certainly that cover this issue. Um, give give us a little bit of a rundown on the, on what we're talking about here, because as I know, there's human trafficking, there's sex trafficking, they're very intertwined. One's very specific. There's all kinds of human trafficking, but sex trafficking, of course, sex trafficking is very uh, specific. Um, first of all, give us a little, just a little bit of a background of your background and researching this, because you've been actually on this issue for quite a long time, correct? That's right. I, I've been researching uh, domestic sex trafficking in the United States since 2017. Uh, and uh, later this year, I will be, uh, be publishing a book, a nonfiction book with the publisher Roman and Littlefield uh, about domestic sex trafficking. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that we're trying to get across in our, in our series is that this is a very nuanced, very complicated issue. And of course, it needs to come full circle here because we all know about Senate Bill 14 from last year, which was a bill authored by Republican Senator Shannon Grove that uh, sought to add uh, a third strike to traffickers convicted of trafficking a minor uh, or, or to make that a third strike eligible offense. And it sailed through the Senate unanimously, was expected to do the same in the Assembly. Then it ran into some problems in the, in the Public Safety Committee. We've talked about it on the show before. The then chairman, Reggie Jones-Sawyer, held up the bill. Uh, it looked like it was going to go nowhere. And then the governor got involved. And then the speaker got involved. The new speaker, uh, Robert Rivas, got involved. And lo and behold, things changed. The bill ended up getting through got with an amendment, by the way, which we can talk about a little bit. And it has since become something that Senator Grove has um, become very vocal about. So that has really brought the issue, I think, into the forefront here in California. But as you know, this has been a really significant issue for much longer than just last summer, right? This is a this is a, a huge plague uh, on our society, not just in California, but uh, but across the country. And it's uh, it's something that affects literally every zip code. I mean, this is this affects rural areas, this affects urban areas, suburban areas. 
Uh, it, it, it crosses, uh, you know, all demographic and socioeconomic populations. I mean, this is a this is a, a terrible evil uh, plight on our society. And it's something that people just don't uh, the general public just doesn't really understand. Well, and what is really maybe the biggest misunderstanding when it comes to trying to sway public opinion in, in on this issue? And and I want to couch that with one of the things we're hearing a lot of lately is about legalizing domestic sex work. Uh, maybe mainstreaming it, legitimizing it, that kind of a thing. But that's not, that issue unto itself is different than what we're talking about with domestic sex trafficking, correct? I mean, they're they're intertwined. They're, there's differences, certainly, but, they're, but those issues are intertwined, I would say. But give us a little bit of the nuance here, because again, domestic sex work is, uh, yeah, they're, they're intertwined. But I think people maybe are not sure they're talking about the same thing as being trafficked. There's a lot of different ways to, to sort of begin to discuss this issue. I, I think um, a lot of advocates, a lot of uh, police officers that have uh, um, experience uh, rescuing women from trafficking and a, a lot of survivors themselves will tell you that uh, the overwhelming majority of women and girls engaged in prostitution are, in fact, uh, under third party control that uh, and, and that would be uh, sex traffic. Now, of course, I'm not saying that that's everybody there. You know, uh, you know, whenever this topic comes up, there is a um, there's always the discussion that, you know, some people choose this lifestyle and, and that and that, you know, I, I'm not going to argue that point. Um, but I think the, the evidence, both anecdotal from people that really are dealing with issue day in and day out, and then also academically, will tell you that the majority of women and girls engaged in prostitution are in fact being, uh, uh, being trafficked by, uh, by a third party, you know, a term that we, uh, we sanitize under the, you know, the name pimp, uh, which, uh, you know, in, in our in today's popular culture, uh, you know, tends to mean cool or, or funny or something like that. But it was really, a, you know, a, a modern day slave master and, a, and an absolutely uh, horrific human being. So now I have a a question for you. Is there data in places where sex work is legal? I'm thinking in you know certain parts of Nevada is an obvious one. How has that impacted sex trafficking? Has it made it worse or better? Is you know, is there any data there? I mean, I you know, Nevada is my uh, is my expertise. I mean, I've been reporting on domestic sex trafficking from Las Vegas now since uh 2017. Um you know, uh, the brothels in Nevada are uh, are regulated by the local sheriff's departments in the rural counties where their brothels are located. Those brothels, uh, you know, audits and uh, people working in those areas will tell you that they do not have the sophistication to uh, to properly understand um, the kinds of issues that occur uh, in the brothels, uh, and and therefore, you know, really don't have the ability to uh, um, you know to properly uh, uh, regulate this issue in in any sort of way. Uh, I can tell you about a, a brothel uh, in northern Nevada that exclusively has uh, um, women of Asian descent, uh, many of whom that do not speak English. Those are legal brothels. Uh, and the local uh, the local sheriff there has, doesn't have a problem with those operations. Um, you can draw your own conclusions about whether that's an appropriate uh, situation to be having uh, in the United States. So basically the the implication is it is probably not any better in a place where it is there is some some legalized procedure there. I don't think there's a, an advocate or person that uh, uh, is deeply engaged in that issue that would would ever say that the uh, uh, legalization uh, makes it any better. No. 
Well, you know, Tim asked about data, and I think that's one of the challenges here, right? That getting accurate data so you can make some kind of a you know, quantified uh, perspective on this is really hard, right? I mean, I I don't so much of what we hear is anecdotal, and it you know, which often tends to be somewhat skewed, correct? Well, I, I think you have to back up and 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 be, and and think about the interactions that we're talking about here. Uh, it, it's really critical to understand what sex trafficking is. Uh, and, and sex trafficking is, is you know, essentially the brainwashing of someone to believe that, that the selling of themselves is uh, um, the only thing that they're good for. W what is brainwashing? Brainwashing makes you convince yourself that you, uh, you know, you believe something that isn't true. Um, so you have the, the first layer of issues where, where oftentimes you have a, uh, uh, people who are being trafficked who who genuinely believe that this is what they want for themselves when in, when in reality and you begin to dig below the surface that that is not at all the case uh, so that's one you know big challenge with you know, gathering data is that you know the the people that you're interviewing you know you know might not even be you know consciously able to describe their you know truly describe the the uh, um the conditions that they're under uh, of course you know at the same time uh um it's it's hard for it can be hard for people that are involved in in what's known as the life or the game to imagine a, a lifestyle outside of that that world and and as a result if you don't if you can't imagine your life outside of that uh, outside of that environment it's hard to to say that you have the option of leaving it so that that's a, a second sort of layer on top of it at the same time um, you know when you talk about trafficking and the third party control of someone that is a very hard. Uh, dynamic to prove uh if you if you were to stand if you were to you know to interact with a a a trafficker and a trafficked woman and they were to stand in front of you how would you know just by looking at them that the that the trafficker is controlling the, the trafficked woman it, it's, it's not something that you can physically see uh in most cases i mean that's why uh, a lot of in the advocacy community talk about the invisible chains of sex trafficking uh these are these are chains that you can't see but but are but are there now, if you again, if you dig below the surface and you find that that trafficker uh, has control over that uh, that woman's uh, passport, uh, her driver's license, that she's not allowed to have her own Uber account, then you, you can mentioned that in, in one of the articles you wrote that that the person that was involved said, oh, well, you know, she didn't couldn't use her own Uber account. She had to use his and something that wouldn't have automatically have occurred to me as a method of control. But then once you explain that and lay it out, you're like, oh, yes, of course, because I don't live in that world. I don't think about it that way. But there are a lot of invisible chains, as you described, there's a lot of subtle ways of control that can be exercised that would not be obvious to the average person that's not part of that life. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, and, and, and there's there's a lot of little things, but you really have to have spent a, a lot of time uh, you know, understanding this issue to to really uh, to really see those sort of things. A, a, a perfect example of that is um, a lot of traffickers expect their uh, their their women and girls, uh, you know, to to re remain in almost near constant contact with them when they are out working. And so, uh, you know, my my reporting uh, primarily focuses uh, on Las Vegas, and and one potential sign of a uh, a, a of a woman who or a girl who is being trafficked is someone walking on the strip who is literally on her phone the entire time talking while she's walking, you know, uh, uh, to somebody. Now, of course, that's, that's, you know, you know, that can also be just someone having a conversation with somebody. You can't, you know, judge that entirely based on that. But that is, you know, a, an example of the sort of level of control that a trafficker can have over their victim. 
And, and it's, it's really, again, I mean, these are the sort of conditions that people really have to understand and really delve into, into this world to, to really begin to, to grasp what is going on. Now, again, these are not pleasant things to see and pleasant conversations to have, of course. And, and it, um, so it's understandable that, that, that maybe a lot of people wouldn't understand, understand what, what, what this really involves. Um, but it really does require you know, a, a deep understanding of what is truly going on and how these things operate in order to, to really get a grasp on, on sort of the policy changes that are necessary to, to help these victims. Well, Brian, I think one of the surprising things, uh, I, I think for most people, is maybe the connections that we see. You know, uh, and you know, I've talked about this, the connection to the hip hop world and to, I mean, there seems to be such a strong connection between rap and hip hop culture and the game with the life. And it certainly seems to have played a role in uh, the, which, the situation which you highlighted really well in the story that we just put up today, which is the one that got all of the big attention, the Chase Comanche uh situation here you know player for the sacramento kings uh, g league team who got arrested for murder and and the interesting thing is the minute that happened i mean almost from the time that happened you called me right away and said i guarantee you this is a trafficking case this is connected to to the life because again you have the experience and, and see the um circumstances that have played out before which a lot of us haven't talk a little bit i guess about that that connection between popular culture and that particular aspect of pop culture and clearly sports uh, and this subculture of pimps and prostitution. Well, I, I want to first start by saying that I, I do not, I, I've, I've researched as part of, as part of my book that's, that's coming out later this year, um, uh, hip hop uh, pretty th thoroughly. And, and I, I have to first say, I do not believe that there is anything intrinsic to hip hop related to, to trafficking. There's nothing intrinsic to hip hop about the enslavement of vulnerable women. That, that is not, uh, you know, a foundational part of hip hop. However, um, you know, hip hop does reflect the conditions of, of the environment in which it was born. And, and sadly, um, uh, you know, hip hop did come in a lot of our disadvantaged uh, uh, communities in America and um, disadvantaged, com disadvantaged communities across the globe have a connection to prostitution. So that is that is, I believe, the sort of the where where you can begin to see um, some initial connections between hip hop and uh, and the life. But again, I do not believe that hip hop, uh, there's anything intrinsic to hip hop that connects it to uh, to sex trafficking. Now, as as that has gone on, as that sort of, you know, uh, the representations of 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 pimp prostitute subculture have have been portrayed in popular culture. We, you've sort of seen almost a a, um, a softening of what that uh, of what those terms mean. So in hip hop today, uh, you know, the term pimp can mean like a super lover or somebody who's very cool or you know someone who's great with the ladies. That is not what a pimp is, uh, and and. And, and oftentimes uh, also in hip hop, you, you know, people forget now when you, you, you see, you know, Snoop Dogg and Jay-Z and, and, uh, and P Diddy, you know, they're in their fifties, but, but hip hop really is a youth culture. Uh, and so you, you, you know, you have a lot of rappers that, you know, maybe, you know, give off sort of this world weary, uh, you know, vibe, but, but really, you know, they're, they're very young and might not really, you know, know a lot about the world in truth uh, about the things that they're rapping about. So, you know, a lot of their sort of, uh, portrayals in their songs might be, uh, um, you know, based on something that they saw on TV rather than true life. This is all a way of saying that, 
you know, the term pimp, pimping has, has, you know, certainly appears a great deal in hip hop, but it's often not, um, it's often not truly explored in its realities. And so as a result, if you're a young person and you engage a real pimp, you might think, oh, this is cool. You know, this is nothing to, nothing to be afraid of. But in reality, you know, if you engage a real pimp, that is something that's really terrifying to, to be in contact with. Now, I will say, uh, you know, that there are, you know, some some hip hop songs that that are very candid about the life. Um, 50 Cent's song P.I.M.P. is a very brutal and candid song about pimping. Uh, I just happened to hear it on the radio today and turned turn the station when I heard it. Um, it is a it is a it is an explicit depiction of of the life and, and the abuses that, that women go through in the life. Well, you know, too, and I, I think it's. I hope you're comfortable with me saying this, but, you know, and I know because we've known each other a very long time, uh, you know, your research has at times, you know, required you to, to have to go out and actually hire protection. I mean, you've, your, your safety has been put at risk in exploring this world, correct? That, that is correct. I, I did have to hire a bodyguard at one point to, during during my research and into the book that's coming out later this year. Yeah, there's because, you know, this is a very, um, this is a scary world. It really is a very, very scary world. These are not, I mean, like, you, like you're saying, the, the, the true practitioners, these are not people to be trifled with, right? No, no. Uh, um, they're, these are psychopaths who, who have no compunction about using violence uh, and, and degrading women. Um, these are these are, I think it's safe to say, very very dangerous and awful human beings. You know, it's it's interesting hearing you talk about this. Uh, this has a bigger picture than just California, just America. Even you know, right now, Andrew Tate, the uh, the I think it's an MMA guy, is in custody because he was running, or you know, he's supposedly has been running this online thing, and he's very candid in interviews about how he wants to break these women down and make them think that their only value is in their, you know, providing sex work. And he's been, you know, there are interviews with him where he's pretty blunt about that. And it is brainwashing. I mean, you, you listen to him and you're like, this is horrible. And yet he's a hero to many young men around the world who, who look at him and see the fancy cars. Uh, they see, you know, the money. He, I think he lives in a castle and obviously lots of very attractive women around him. And they see him as a role model. And even long before hip hop, we had, you know, the Italian mafia who were obviously involved in running pits. And when the Sopranos came out, we had uh, the the Senate pro tem. I think he had a Sopranos off uh, poster in his office. Don, Don Parada. He had the uh, in his in his fundraising, he would have the, the R shaped like a gun. Yeah. Don Parada, you know, basically celebrating that culture. And at the time. I found that kind of off-putting myself. I wasn't sure whether I was just being a little squeamish, but there has been this long time crossover between pop culture and power and sort of gangster culture. I mean, now everyone says OG, original gangster, and really doesn't ever think about what it genuinely, I mean, originally meant. So this is an interesting thing on the very, very big picture. And I think what you're seeing is just a tiny corner of it or what we're, you know, this Shannon Grove bill is just kind of, looking at a tiny little corner of this celebration of, for lack of a term, thug culture. Toxic masculinity, certainly. Um, a large part of my research has also involved uh, reading uh, books written by pimps 
explaining what they do. And they are exceedingly candid and exceedingly horrifying about the the uh, uh, their descriptions of, of how they, like you said, uh, intentionally break women down to make them their servants and slaves. Uh, it is uh, grotesque that these uh, these texts exist. It's grotesque that publishers have published them. Um, they are uh, uh, incredibly horrifying to read, but but their bluntness really does give you an insight into the mindset of these awful human beings. Brian, um, just maybe a last thing here. Part of the issue and part of the reason we're writing this story is because, you know, it became a big political issue last year. And, you know, you and I have both spoken with lawmakers and others about this issue and, and and with some trafficking survivors, of course, you far more than me about about this. You know, I think one of the real challenges for lawmakers is, I mean, look, at you have you have many, many years of really intense, in-depth research to understand this issue and all of the nuances of this issue. And, you know, let's be fair. I mean, lawmakers rarely get a chance to, to know any issue quite as well as as you do on this one. What are those challenges, though? I mean, that's obviously one big one. What are some of the challenges lawmakers face when they're trying, you know, maybe with their hearts completely in the right place to do something in, in a policy way that will actually positively impact this issue? Yeah, sex trafficking is very difficult for, for a lot of reasons. Sex trafficking involves sex, which is something that all all of you know all of us humans do and so um i think there's a misconception uh that because it involves you know something that we all do that that we all sort of have a a a, 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 a you know to some degree an understanding of, of what may be going on uh let me be very clear sex the the sort of interactions that involve sex trafficking are not at all comparable to healthy sexual behavior in in adults um, but because the word sex is included in there, I think a lot of people sort of automatically assume that they kind of get it. At the same time, um, you know, we live in a uh, misogynistic culture where we dismiss, uh, you know, we dismiss women as, you know, pardon my language, sluts or whores. And um, when you start talking about women who are prostituted, um, you know, their stories are often discounted as the stories of, quote, sluts and whores. And that's wrong and inappropriate, um, but that's something that uh, um, you know that people need to be educated on. I also think it doesn't help that popular culture depictions of sex trafficking are just, for the most part, uh, not typical sex trafficking experiences. Uh, you know, movies that quickly come to mind when you think of sex trafficking are, are movies like Taken or The Equalizer. Um, I'm not saying that stuff doesn't happen, but that is not typical sex trafficking in America today. That is just not uh, um, what uh, what sex trafficking looks like in the United States. And so you have sort of these the, this confluence of, of, uh, of factors that cause people to think that they understand this issue when they don't. And um, I think that's a, a huge problem. I think a, a secondary problem is that, you know, there is not a a lobby for this, right? I mean, it, it is very difficult for survivors to 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 come out and speak uh, on these issues, uh, you know, because of the social pressures, the social stigma. Uh, it's not like there's a a large uh, lobby, uh, certainly not a large funded lobby, uh, to push for these 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 sort of regulatory changes. There are wonderful advocates out there, wonderful survivors that are doing amazing work, 
Um, but, uh, you know, there's not like this, you know, groundswell of, uh, you know, voters that are, are making campaign donations that can affect this issue. And I, and, and it's, it's sad that, but that's, that's also hindering progress uh, on this front. Yeah. You know, thinking about popular culture, I guess, when we didn't talk about, it, I mean, I think so many of us have seen, uh, Wayne Brady's appearance on the Chappelle show and that I'm not going to repeat the tagline that has come out of that. That's become almost a part of, you know, popular culture too. I mean, it is one of those things that's disturbing to think how easily and how misogynistic uh, so many of these of our, that, you know, were part of comedy skits. Maybe in the end, that's the 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 thing that will push these things toward a, a positive res, revo, resolution more than anything is just a general changing of that of that casual acceptance you know well and that, that you're, you're absolutely correct there is a there's an absolute casual acceptance of of um pimp culture and sex trafficking and 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 pimp lingo i mean whenever you say things like you know the political game well, wh where did that come from the, the the term the game that's that comes from from pimp lingo the term wifey that's a term from from pimp lingo saying i don't f with something that's pimp lingo um uh you know, I, I I was eating my Cheerios the other day, and I you know I saw on the back that uh, Ice T was a uh, you know a pitch man for for Cheerios. Ice T got his start, uh, you know, portraying pimps uh, as a rapper, and uh, and claims to have been a pimp prior to his his hip hop career. Uh, you know, these are these are disturbing things that we just let slide in our culture, right? Well, I hope um, this is a little bit of shameless self-promotion here, but I do hope uh, folks out there take the time to read uh, the stories that you've produced for us this month. It is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. I do hope everybody takes a moment, checks out, uh, because, you know, you've covered the SB 14 uh, debate and discussions and, and brought it up into the current realm you know what's going on You've really giving us a really good peek behind the scenes at the chase comanche situation uh, which was a great illustration of what um how that how deeply the tendrils go uh you know with with this issue well beyond what people would think of as you know casual street walking prostitution very very different from that and of course we have one more story coming out which will come out probably the day after this airs Talking a little bit more about what lawmakers are are doing and 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 what we may see here in California in the future. So, you know, want to thank you a lot for that, Brian. And before we let you go, too, let's let's switch gears a little bit here. There's a joke to be made in there that I'm not going to make, but I will just say let's talk about lobbying because um, you also cover lobbying quite well for us, and we have been covering the quarterly reports of lobbying and expenditures and, so, and that's always fascinating you know we, that's a big part of our audience and so we're going to be uh, having more on that here in the next couple of weeks but i always appreciate your take on this because you you've been covering lobbying expenditures for a long time and i think you take a slightly different tack on it than some of the other uh, media outlets out there tell us a little bit of your approach to to sussing out the real numbers uh, when it comes to lobbying spending here in Sacramento, I've approached uh, the coverage of, of lobbying for uh, for my work for Capital Weekly through the lens of 
of as, as a business story. I mean, I, I think uh, um, the the audience of Capital Weekly, um, given that it's a, sort of the political community around Sacramento, that they're really interested uh, in in understanding, you know, which firms are profiting and 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 doing the best, you know, in a given quarter, uh, you know, from a business perspective. And so I, I've really uh, tried to gear our our lobbying coverage, you know, through the eyes of of uh, I'm running a, a lobbying firm. I want to know how my competitors are doing and where I stack up against them. I, I mean, I've really, I've really sort of approached it with that in mind, you know. So it, you'll see from our our last quarterly coverage that we really, you know, are, are you know place a premium on on seeing, you know, who's you know who's built the most and 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 you know where where people rank in that. And I think that um, uh, is important because uh, in in the capital community, uh, you know, you know, being number one is is certainly part of the culture uh, in Sacramento. But also, I think it it, it also speaks to um, you know where power bases are. I, I mean, I I think um, it's important to, to understand when you when you look at uh, the influence game that you know it's more than just the lobbyist employer that the lobbyist also matters too. The the firm that you uh, that you contract with, uh, um, you know, can open some doors for you. And so I think you know giving people a quarter by quarter assessment of uh you know who really has the most business and who um uh you know has you know quote unquote the most influence uh is um is both valuable from a, a business perspective uh for, for the lobbying community but also for a, from a perspective of uh helping people better understand how democracy truly works in sacramento well and you suss out numbers a little differently too right well uh, i i do um the the system that is used to uh, record the data uh, with the Secretary of State uh, can be can be sort of uh, I don't want to say wonky. It's just being difficult to work with. So what I actually do is I, I actually uh, go uh, uh, statement by statement uh, and, and pull the numbers myself uh, and uh, um, you know, build my own database each quarter um, uh, to ensure that we have the most accurate uh, numbers that reflect just spending on lobbying i you know i i I, you know try to get rid of anything that's not uh not lobbying spending so yeah i do um aggregate that data by hand uh to ensure the the best possible accuracy all right well thanks brian appreciate all of that good info on uh, this series that we're doing on sex trafficking Uh, but now of course it's time to discuss who had the worst week in california politics the worst week worst week worst week Tim, you know, it's almost always feast or famine in this in this segment. And this week it is definitely feast. There, there we have a very clear winner who we'll get to here in just a bit, but we had lots and lots of possibilities heading into this too. So where we... were they last week? Where were they last week? Yeah, yeah. Everybody decided to wait and do everything all at one time. Like I say, it's feast or famine, right? So well, let's start with we all paid a lot of attention, of course, this week to the uh, Senate debate. And, um, you know, there's probably some some question as to who maybe was the winner or loser there. I mean, I, I think a lot of people feel Adam Schiff was a clear winner. Um, you can make a case. I, I know Skelton made a case in the L.A. Times that Garvey may have been the winner because he he didn't uh, really uh, need to do much short version. I don't know, though. What do you think? I mean, my, I, I feel like maybe Katie Porter needed to do a lot more and just didn't. And uh, she didn't really face plant, but she didn't really do enough to help herself when she really needed to. What do you think? You know, I watched the debate in real time and I didn't come away with a feeling that 
there was a real clear winner and loser. And I felt like all of them probably played to their constituencies. So you had, if you went in liking Katie Porter, you thought she did well. You went in liking Barbara Lee, you thought she did well. Uh, the one I thought did not do well, but I don't think it will matter that much, is Steve Garvey, who I actually thought first half hour or so was presenting himself well, seemed like he was very... I really liked that his answers were very slow paced and uh, everyone else was sort of aggressively trying to fill their time. And he came across as very thoughtful, but the longer that went on, the sort of the less that worked. And then when he refused to take a stand on whether or not he was going to vote again uh, for president Trump, if he was the nominee, I thought that was weak. I'm not sure it, it will make any difference to his potential voters, but I did think that that was it was hard to make an answer, you know, hard to stand up for that when you refuse to say how you're going to vote or how you're inclined to vote. That was a little weak, but I didn't feel like there was a clear winner and loser. I think you're right. Porter needed, or I should say needs to have uh, something that sets her up into the top two. And I didn't see that there, but again, maybe Maybe it just didn't register with me and maybe there were a lot of other people watching. Because the other question is how many people really even watch the debate and how many how much influence will this have? Well, you know, I, again, I'll, I'm going to I'm going to credit George Skelton, who also made the point, you know, Garvey needed Trump to to not do well in New Hampshire. And when when he won New Hampshire, that's going to make it really hard for for uh, because, you know, if the if the nominee is already pretty much selected before it gets to California, it's going to suppress Republican voting or voting in general, which is probably going to, you know, would include Republicans and that's going to hurt him. So maybe he, you know, maybe he, in, not inadvertently, but, you know, was the loser simply because it was not in his control. But I, I'm with you. I got, I kind of felt like um, it, it was status quo for a lot uh, of the debate and Porter and Lee needed to do a breakout. I don't think either one did. And Garvey is just, He's Steve Garvey at this point, and that's all you needed to know about that, I think. Um, but we had others. There were many others. Um, let's let's talk about the Tribal Gaming Initiative. There was, you know, as we all know, um, about a half a billion dollars, uh, actually more than half a billion dollars, got spent on the two ballot measures in the last election, twenty six props twenty six and twenty seven, both of which failed miserably. Um, there was an effort to try to bring another ballot initiative around this time. And uh, that isn't going anywhere, is it, Tim? No, and if I'm not mistaken, there's actually two, the Tribal Gaming Protection Act and the Sports Wagering Regulation and Tribal Gaming Protection Act. So they've both been withdrawn. And I think that was probably smart because they were trial balloons. <laughs> if they were trial balloons, those trial balloons popped really quickly. And uh, so it was probably good to pull these before they spent too much more money on on them. Uh, good news for the game for the for the gaming tribes. Uh, probably bad news for political consultants who were and uh, media media buyers. But yeah, that did go down. So uh, be curious to see if they try to come back with this. I mean, this is an issue that has been ongoing for over a decade, and I suspect that we're going to see something like this again or some variation. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, but California is the biggest market in the country. It is inconceivable to me that efforts will not continue to be made. Um, we have a unique situation here a little bit with uh, between casinos, card rooms, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, we'll see how it all plays itself out. But I'd be extraordinarily surprised if 
this is the last word we hear of it. Um, another ballot measure was the psychedelic mushroom ballot initiative, and that failed to qualify. Um, yeah. uh, you know, essentially an effort to legalize psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, and uh, that's not going to get on the ballot, is it, Tim? Yeah, and this, you know, been a series of losses for the psychedelic mushroom uh, legalization movement. Uh, you know, Senator Wiener's bill did not go anywhere. And then some months ago, you had uh, an airline pilot who was apparently on psychedelic mushrooms wreaking havoc in the skies. And I think that alone probably has sealed the fate of the psychedelic mushroom legalization movement anytime soon. Uh, but yeah, so this is another step, a step backwards for, for them. Yeah, that effort is uh, going nowhere fast. Um, uh, somebody who might be going somewhere fast, I guess we're going to find out, is the Temecula School Board President, uh, Joseph Kamrowski. Uh, a recall election against him, or petition against him, has been certified and will get decided by voters. Uh, what do we know about that one, Tim? Well, he has been a really aggressive, very conservative member of this board and has been very vocal in his criticism. I believe he called Harvey Milk a pedophile, has uh, called out Governor Newsom. I get the feeling that he is too far uh, to the right for his district. I, I don't know that, but I don't know that district that well. But my gut is he is actually in danger of being recalled because uh, the things he said are really pretty hard to defend. Right. Well, another another entity that's been hard to defend in recent years, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, has a, uh, been hit with a $45 million fine for its involvement in uh, the Dixie Fire, which is one of the largest and easily one of the most destructive such wildfires in our state's history. Uh, about $40 million of that um, is shareholder funding for an initiative uh, to transition some of the utilities records to electronic records. But that's, and look, they've been hit with so many fines in recent years. I, I don't even know where that stacks up against some of their other fines, but uh, another bad, bad week for PG&E, I would say, wouldn't you? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I hate to say this because it seems, seems crass and hard to believe, but that fine is actually not that much in the consideration of the damage and a consideration of the other fines have gotten. So in a way, they may even be breathing a sigh of relief that it was only $45 million, uh, which is in a way it's inc inconceivable, but that's sort of the numbers we're looking at. Right. Well, well and I should say before we go to the end, uh, you know, I, I feel like all of us uh, who are located no close to the Capitol are the losers this week because we got notification that chicory is going to, going to close uh, in February. And if you are a listener to this podcast and you live in Sacramento or you spend much time in Sacramento and you're dealing with the capital, you probably know Chicory. We lost Ambrosia, which was the other sort of go-to coffee spot right near the capital. And, you know, I just don't know. I don't even know where you're going to go to hear gossip anymore. Right. Uh, you know, uh, that's actually where I was going with all this is a uh, Chicory closing was pretty shocking. And, uh, I think they're closing uh, February 1st, right? I think that was what I saw the sign on the door say. So maybe there's a few more days to go uh, partake of their of their offerings. But, you know, we know things come and go. We we certainly saw a lot of it during uh, the pandemic. Uh, and, it, it, you know, we've seen in recent years buds and you mentioned ambrosia. It's always tough 
to see these places, you know, not survive, especially that one, because it's right across from the Capitol. And yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, God knows I, during the, my inaugural time of the top 100, I met a lot of people and drank a lot of coffee there to, to, to learn about the backstory on a lot of folks to see about who was going to be on the list. So yeah, that was, that was a t- tough one to hear, but we're going to cross our fingers. You know, we've seen Jim Denny's go in and out and in and out and in and out. So who knows, uh, maybe something will, will be there shortly to replace it or See, we're not even mentioning that in and out is closing in Oakland. This is like such a big, uh, you know, I guess it's not technically political. That was criminal. But uh, but anyway, sorry. I, uh, you know, and I have to say, uh, I saw that on on Facebook, Paula Treat said, oh, it's a rough, rough week. And I immediately thought of her because I think I've seen I've seen her at, at Chicory. Half the times I've been at Chicory, Paula Treat was in there uh, holding court. So it is definitely a place if you want to see third house folks, that's where you're going to see them a lot of the time <laughs> for sure. Well, those are all good candidates, but this week we have a very, very clear winner and and really timely because we we just learned this morning that um, former L.A. City Councilman, um, and I really want to make sure I say his name right, Jose Huizar. I believe so. uh, His sentencing came today and he got sentenced to 13 years in prison for a long list of corruption charges payouts, uh, you know, luxury hotels, lots of bribes with developers and others and on and on and on. And uh, yeah, the hammer came down today and he got uh, Baker's dozen years in in jail. So I'd say that's our easy winner, wouldn't you, Tim? I think, yeah, it was an easy winner. And I did see uh, he was quoted at saying that they had dangled these shiny objects in front of him that he couldn't resist. And at least if nothing else, He's acknowledging that he did something wrong. It is kind of refreshing at this point to see an elected official that's, uh, you know, having legal troubles, acknowledging that they did something wrong since so many times at this point uh, they're not. And they're just saying that it's all rigged and corrupt. And so kudos to Jose Huizar for at least taking some responsibility for his own uh, bad actions. Well, that said, I mean, he had also pleaded with the court for a, a more lenient sentence. I think he had asked for nine years. And so uh, clearly the court uh, chose not to go <laughs> honor that request. So I think, uh, yeah, that that makes a bad week that much worse. I guess it's District Judge uh, John F. Walter wasn't having it. And so uh, Mr. Weezar is going to go to jail for quite a long time. So that is our easy winner for the worst week in California politics. We'll be looking at this next week and, and, uh, yes. Well, thanks. uh, Thanks to Brian Joseph, our great reporter for coming on talking about his stories. Um, my sympathies to all of the worst week folks, except I guess, I guess I shouldn't have any sympathy for somebody who did the corrupt things that, uh, Jose Huizar did. So, well, we can have empathy 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 for for his bad decisions in life. People Uh, make mistakes. He made a lot of them. And wait until next time. We will see you next week on the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm uh, Cap Weekly Editor Rich Eisen for myself and Tim Foster. We'll see you next time. See you, Rich. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California.